0: Baptism! (laughs) Acts chapter number 8. Acts chapter number 8. As we go into this, um, as Jacob mentioned, I appreciate Jacob um, leading us in worship this morning and taking the time to um, share some of the things that are going on here at our church. And we're grateful because when we look at what's happening, uh, if you look across this auditorium, we have a majority full auditorium um, uh, before Easter service. our church, our church. Sometimes I challenge our church to have greater faith. And oftentimes our church challenges me to have greater faith. Um, And so when we were going up into Easter, um, a few people in our church said, Hey, uh, we had some of these blue chairs um, in storage. Um, And so they said, Hey, we need to pull out like all the chairs we got. And I'm like, come on guys, we're going to two services. We're doing this. We're doing that for Easter. You know, we're really trying to, they're like, no, 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 no. Like, Nate, we need to bring these chairs. I'm like, are you guys sure? Like, do you really? They're like, no, no, no. We need to bring the chairs out. I'm like, okay, okay, fine. Um, and so I said, let's just do it. We'll bring the chairs out. Let's just, you know, we'll get we'll get them all squared away. We'll get it taken care of. And so for last week, we did. Um, and so if you were here last week, we had a wonderful time celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In our second service last week, um, including kids, including nursery, including people serving out in the lobbies, we had 220 people on this campus in the second service alone. 175 is that number? I believe that number is right. David, I think is out in the lobby today. 175 in this auditorium. And if we hadn't pulled chairs out, we had 190-something chairs, I believe. So we would have been sitting on laps and things like that, trying to accommodate everybody in here. So I'm thankful for those who said, Hey, uh, Pastor, you don't have enough faith. (laughs) And it proved to be true, didn't it? And even today, I look across this room, and yeah, there are empty seats. But you know what that means? It means we have a job to do. Um, It means that just because we had a wonderful Easter gathering, the work is not done. Um, In fact, how many of you invited someone um, to come last week that did not come many of us, right? Um, how many of you invited someone to come that came last week and they're not here today? Can I say this? The work's not done. The work's not done. And so we celebrate what God has done and is continuing to do. But that doesn't mean at the same time that we disengage and we don't continue to move forward and continue to do this work. And so as we go into these next steps, uh, I want you to ask two questions each week as we engage in our next steps. Uh, First is this what steps do I need to take? Okay. Um, And when I say I, I don't mean Nate. All right, because you could all probably figure out steps Nate needs to take. That's not the question. The question is what steps. Do you need to take? And the second question is this How can I or you be a part of helping others to take their next steps? Um, I want to introduce really this whole series. So this week, we're going to kind of introduce the series and we're going to jump into baptism, what baptism looks like specifically here in just a moment. But I want to start the whole thing, this whole study, with this statement Disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. Follow me. Disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. Now you might uh, be newer to church and disciple is kind of a, it's kind of a church word. Okay. Um, it's actually, it's the most common word used to describe Christians in the new Testament is a disciple. A disciple is one who follows after. So a follower of Jesus, a true, committed, devoted follower of Jesus, makes other followers of Jesus. That's just in the DNA. Um, How many of you have seen those commercials? Um, I think it's Progressive. They have this commercial, this campaign um, that says you don't have to become your parents. Anybody seen those? Um, they're 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 pretty amusing, and you have um, this guy who's kind of a coach, looks a little Dr. Philish, um, and he comes in, and he he uh, there's a there's a lady who's walking through the store on speakerphone, and he's like, uh, uh, we don't use speakerphone in in public. He's trying to encourage her and help her. Um, they're they're in a, they're in like a Home Depot, and a guy with blue hair walks by, and there he gets out of sight, and the one goes, yes, blue hair. He's like, it's, uh. There's things like that where all of a sudden, they're they're trying, like, don't become, just because you buy a home, is is the statement, you don't have to be like your parents. Um, How many of you, as you grow older, um, you realize that you're more like your parents than you wanted to think you were when you were younger, right? Uh, We do something and we're like, oh my goodness. Um, How many of you, your spouse is more like, okay, um, back away. (laughs) back way off of that. Um, Jessica, Joe raised his hand. Um, Nothing safe around here. It's incredible, right? We become like them, don't we? Um, How many of you have kids and as terrifying as it is, you see yourself in your kids? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Um, my my poor wife yesterday morning, we spent um, a couple hours out on soccer fields. I was coaching um, our girls team a little bit older um, and Cindy was sitting with our boys who are three and it was their first soccer game ever. Um, And I don't know which one of our boys was more like me, the one that stood in the middle of the field watching the ball or the one crying on the sideline. I don't know, probably both and depended on the day. Um, They become so much, they're so much like us in all the terrifying ways, right? But what we really find is like produces like. Like produces like. And so uh, if you were to go out and you were to uh, plant corn, we're familiar with corn, we live in the Midwest, okay? Um, You go out and you were to plant corn, sow the seed, what's going to grow up as a result of that seed? Corn, corn, if anything grows every time, it's going to be corn. You're not going to go plant corn. And you walk out and you go, oh, these are beans. Unless you are like me and can't tell the seeds apart. Um, you're going to plant something and it's going to grow. Like produces like. And so disciples of Jesus Christ, what do disciples of Jesus Christ produce? Disciples of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus. You want a really quick reality check? Uh, you want to call yourself a disciple of Jesus? What's the fruit say? What's the fruit say? Are you producing disciples of Jesus? People that model behavior after you—are they—are they growing in their faith? And so, as we step into this, we have to understand very, very clearly that disciples of Jesus produce disciples. And as we come into this, we really need to honestly evaluate and ask ourselves: How are we doing? You see, we are perfectly designed to get the results that we're getting. Every organization is, every individual is. Uh, We are perfectly designed to get the results, not the the results that we want, but the results that we're getting. Okay? And so if we look at our lives and say, where's the fruit? There's probably something beneath the surface that's taking place that's keeping us from producing this fruit. Let's jump into Acts chapter number eight. That's our uh, introduction into our series, Acts chapter number eight. And we are going to uh, look at verse number one is where we'll begin. Um, And then what we're going to see is we're going to meet a man by the name of Philip. And so let's begin um, in Acts chapter number eight. Let's begin reading in verse number one. I'm getting warm in here. And so is everybody, everybody okay? My shirt too bright, blinding anybody? No? Good. All right. I'm just going to heave it at Tim. So appreciate it good catch. So here's what we're going to do. Acts chapter number eight, verse number one. The Bible says this, and Saul approved of his execution, his meaning Stephen in chapter number seven. And there arose on that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. They wept for him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And this Saul um, would later come to be known as Paul. Uh, Acts chapter number nine, he would himself become a disciple of Jesus. Many scholars believe that this same Saul was responsible for the death of about 2,000 believers in Jesus. That's who this man was. And so we enter the picture, the early church. This is just uh, a year about after Jesus had been crucified, maybe less. And what we find is we find that the church, the early church has grown dramatically. Acts chapter number two, we find a day that we call Pentecost it took place just a couple of months, not even two months after Jesus' uh, death, burial, and resurrection. And we find that these believers multiplied so dramatically that thousands were saved and baptized, as we'll get to in a minute, after this great day, thousands. So a church, this gathering goes from just a few dozen people to being thousands of people Almost overnight, right? And imagine all of the things that are trying to take place uh, as a church right now. Um, we're experiencing some things that we could, we could call growing pains, right? And they're good problems to have. They get addressed and you work through them. But at uh, but same times it happens. Anytime that, that an organization or an organism scales... They're growing pains. And so one of the growing pains of the first century church was that there were those who felt that their needs were being neglected by the church. They were looking around and uh, specifically these were widows. And these were widows um, that were more Hellenistic, more Greek in their background. And they said, hey, listen, are our widows? Uh, you're feeding the widows and you're ministering to the widows that are more Jewish in their background um, that speak Hebrew and that affiliate this way. But those who are a little more Greek in their traditions, they're getting neglected, but they're part of the church, too. And so the apostles, the, the preachers of the first church there in Jerusalem said, hey, our responsibility is first and foremost to the word of God and to prayer. And so we're going to commit ourselves to this, Acts chapter number six. But let's call out seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost, full of wisdom, and let's put them over this business, this matter that they can go about and they can meet these real needs. And so they called out these men. Some of us today, uh, many believe that these are the first what we would call deacons of the church. That word deacon meaning this, a servant. And so these men served in Acts chapter number six, and they ministered and they met needs. And as they did, the church continued to grow and to multiply. One of those first deacons that we see mentioned is a man by the name of Philip. Philip, and here we find Philip again in. Acts chapter number eight, verse number four, because as persecution began to rise up all around the church in Jerusalem, what happened to the believers? We read it at the beginning of Acts chapter number eight. As persecution came, the apostles said, hey, we need to stay put here in Jerusalem, but you guys just go, scatter. Uh, go to places where you can take and you can preach the gospel and you don't have to fear for this persecution. And so they did. And so we find in chapter number eight, verse number four, that Philip was one of those that was scattered. And it says this, those who were scattered went out about, watch this, preaching the word. So when they scattered, what did they do? They went and they hid in their houses, right? They went and locked themselves away so that no one could see them or hear them or, or find them. Now, when they scattered, they preached the word. Why? Because they were disciples of Jesus. It was in their DNA. It was who they were. They couldn't keep it back. And so they go to these new cities and they begin preaching the gospel. And this Philip, whose first job in the church was serving tables, is now, watch this, part of a great revival that takes place in the city of Samaria. And Philip went down into the city and he proclaimed to them the Christ, the crowds with one accord. So all of them in unity paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And so this man, Philip We see how God begins to use him. And God begins in Acts chapter number 6 and continues here to Acts chapter number 8. And in fact, we even see Philip later in Acts chapter number 21, where Philip is the only person in the Bible given this title, evangelist. Evangelist. He was called Philip the evangelist. That word evangelist, evangelist, um, it means this. It means um, a good (laughs) newsist. one who takes and spreads the good news or what we could call the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he, all of a sudden now, by the time we get to Acts 21, he is marked by, he is characterized by being a man who took the gospel, the good news of Jesus to others. They called him Philip, the evangelist. How cool is that? And so as we look at Philip, we're going to see that this title was well deserved. It was well deserved Because here we begin to see that Philip has gone and he's gone out of Jerusalem and he goes to Samaria. But as we really begin to press into this chapter, as we're looking at Philip, and then we're going to look at the fruit that Philip bears here in a few minutes, uh, what I want you to notice is this. God often moves in unexpected ways. God moves in unexpected ways. If you wanted Philip to go to Samaria from Jerusalem and you're God, how are you proposing that, right? Maybe I'll come to to Philip in a vision and I'll say, Philip, go to Samaria, and then Philip will go to Samaria. Maybe i will just lay on his heart and burden him for the people of Samaria. But how did God move the early church out of Jerusalem? Persecution, right? How many of you guys, that's the tool you prefer, (laughs) Persecution. God allowed men like Saul to come in and to push against the early believers. And so they fled. Uh, They left their homes and they left their possessions behind and they went to wherever they could go. And so Philip, he, he leaves this place and persecution is not the vehicle that you and I would choose. But oftentimes I believe this firmly that God allows difficult things into our lives and he allows these things into our lives to move us where he wants us to go. Because you know what happens when we get comfortable? How, how many of you guys, uh, you just, this morning, the alarm went off and you uh, hit snooze? Guilty? <laughs> wow, you guys are more disciplined than I am, or less honest. Um, the same. What do we do? When our bed is comfortable, we don't want to climb out of it. I love this illustration of the eagle's nest. Um, when, when eaglets, that's fun to say, begin to get big enough that they need to fly. You know, what, you know what parents, the parents begin to do? They begin to make this nest more and more uncomfortable for their babies. They begin to take out the soft things and kind of just jettison those. They begin to find a little more prickly branches and kind of make it a little bit because eventually they want these eaglets to leave the nest, don't they? So often in our lives, you and I, we want comfort. We desire comfort. Uh, We want to make sure that we have enough money or enough time or that we live close enough to the people that we care about or this or that or the other thing. And we live our lives chasing after comfort when maybe, in fact, the comfort that you and I are seeking after and the hardships that you and I are pushing away. Maybe those are the things that God wants to use in your life to draw you closer to him. God moves in unexpected ways. He does things that you and I, we don't see and predict and understand all of them clearly. And so when we walk through hardships, do we face and view those hardships as being something that is a curse on us? Or do we view those as being things that are worthy of our calling, that are shaping us to be more like God has designed us to be? And so we find Philip and we find his response to the movement of God. But we also see this, and I love this. God leads us not only in unexpected ways, but to unexpected places. And he does this to Philip um, three times. We're going to see by the end of the day today, we've read the first one uh, because what do we see? We see Jerusalem. Now, what had just happened in Jerusalem? Thousands came to Christ, right? Thousands came to Christ, Overnight, just this massive movement of the Holy Spirit saved and baptized, and others continuing to be added to the church. And they're growing and they're meeting in the gospel. The good news of Jesus is going out from this place. And it's incredible to watch if you can just imagine all that's going on. And then God allows this persecution to come. And then where does Philip end up next? In a place called Samaria. What kind of people live in Samaria? Samaritans. All right? Samaritans. It wasn't a trick question. Samaritans live in Samaria. If you're not familiar with Samaritans, Samaritans were descendants that were um, part Jew, part Gentile. They were the offspring of mixed marriages, which was expressly forbidden by God. In the Old Testament, there were those that they worshipped other gods, and yet these Israelites, even though these other people didn't worship the true God, we're going to go and we're going to connect with them. And we find idolatry ensued. And so the Jewish people, because of this, the Jewish people don't like the Samaritans at all. In fact, we've heard the story of the Good Samaritan. And then the story of the good Samaritan, this is a story that's supposed to turn all of that on its head because now the good person in the story is the Samaritan. And it's kind of supposed to make the Jews go, oh! and yet where does Philip go? He goes to Samaria. He goes to a place that any good Jewish person wouldn't want to go to. And yet God moves him there. And then what does God do through Philip there? He begins to preach the gospel. And what happens? people respond to come to Christ. They begin to multiply. They become disciples. They follow after Jesus. What an incredible testimony in what anyone in this first century would have looked at and been like, no, that's not the place that God's going to do it. Gentiles. Sure. Like, okay, I guess Jews. Absolutely. Samaritans. eh. No, but God uses Philip to reach this unlikely place with the gospel. And then from there, this is not the last unlikely place that he moves Philip. Um, in fact, watch this. We're going to fast forward a little bit. The middle part of this chapter is about some of Philip's ministry there in Samaria. It's a fascinating read. I encourage you to read it sometime Uh, for sake of time. We're going to jump down to verse number 26. Now watch this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip rise and go toward the South to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And so not only, so now imagine this, you're Philip and you were part of just this greatest revival that the world has ever seen um, in Jerusalem. And then God moves you to Samaria and immediately, you know, Philip could have said, okay, well, we're starting over, but it's okay because God, you're going to be with us. And then things start going well in Samaria. And then God's like, Hey, Philip, it's time to leave. (laughs) If you're like me and God does that to you, you're like, come on, God, really? Like Jerusalem, things are going so well, but you're like, no, get out of there. And then now Samaria, we put all the work in and things are starting to move in Samaria and you're telling me to leave there. But what does he do? We don't see that from Philip. We see Philip go, okay. And so he goes. And he goes all the way from Samaria. This is not a short journey. He goes all the way from Samaria down to this road in the middle of what? The desert. The desert. And as he comes into this desert, he meets an unexpected person. But if you know anything about God, we also know that God guides to unexpected people. God guides to unexpected people. There's some of you that are in the room right now. Um, that if all of your high school friends knew that you were sitting in church, they would be dumbfounded, right? Uh, There are some of you that you're raising your family to love Jesus, and if, if the neighbors that you grew up with knew that that kid was serving Jesus with their life, they would be astounded. But God guides to unexpected people, such as this man in verse 27. Philip rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And so we find this man that if you could have been... uh, Samaria is not an expected place, um, but at least the Jews have a history with the Samaritans. This man... Is an Ethiopian. Now, the Ethiopian had come up to worship in Jerusalem, and so he had traveled up through what would be modern day um, Sudan and modern day um, Egypt and come all the way up there across the Sinai Peninsula into Israel to worship. Um, But here's the thing here's some things that are really interesting about this man. Um, uh, First of all, what is he identified as? We see there was an Ethiopian, and he was a eunuch. Now, according to Jewish law, eunuchs were not able to go and worship in the temple. They were considered uh, unclean based on the events that had happened in their life. So this, they were, they were not able to go in there, so he was unclean, and he was obviously not Jewish, at least by race, right? Now, what we do know about this man is he was likely what was called a God-fearer. A God-fearer, which means that he was one who he believed in the God of Israel. He did the best that he could to worship the God of Israel. He may or may not have been what would be called a proselyte, one that just fully immerses themselves into uh, the worship of Yahweh according to his covenants and laws. Uh, but he was one that worshipped. We see he worshipped the God of Israel, right? Because he came to Jerusalem for the point of worship. And so this man is now on his way back home after worshiping in Jerusalem. And as Philip sees him, what does Philip do? Watch this. Watch this. What does Philip do? The spirit said to Philip, verse 29, go and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading. So apparently this man was uh, reading out loud right? He heard him reading. And so maybe like you, if you or me, if we're trying to read and really get a grasp of something, if my kids are trying to do something while I'm trying to read, I'll start reading out loud, right? Um, And so for whatever reason, he's reading out loud, trying to focus on what's taking place. And Philip comes alongside him and says this, do you understand what you're reading? In verse 31, he says, how can I unless someone guides me? And so here we see a one-on-one, a beautiful example of Philip, the evangelist. Now that word evangelist, we talked about it just a little bit ago. Um, It's a gospel-ist or a good news-ist, all right? person that goes out and shares the good news of the gospel of Jesus with others. And so this word is actually fairly uh, uncommon in the New Testament. In fact, the word evangelist, um, you'll only find that two times. Once it's a command to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And once in Acts 21, referring to Philip. And so as we look at Philip, as we look at this man, I, I believe um, that Philip is, in, this is my opinion, okay? This is the Bible. In my opinion, I think Philip is one of, if not the most maybe underrated, if I can say it that way, follower of Jesus in the New Testament. We don't know a lot about Philip, but the stuff we do know about Philip, man, He would be the guy that you would want to spend time with and you would want to minister with. Because this guy was so good at opening up the word of God and speaking with people about the gospel. And what does he do? When God says, Go and join this chariot, he goes over to him, he hears him reading, and what does he do? He initiates the conversation. And when he initiates the conversation, notice what he does. He doesn't come and say, Hey, I can tell you all about that guy. What does he do? He says, Hey, do you understand the thing that you're reading? Do you understand the thing that you're reading? You know, I've found that one of the best ways to have a conversation with someone is simply this, to ask a question, to ask a question. You see, we talk about wanting to be able to share the gospel with other people, and we ought to share the gospel with others. You know, one of the best ways to begin gospel conversations, you know what it is? Ask questions. Ask questions. You'd be surprised at how many people, if you were to come up to them and you were to say, hey, um... What can I pray about with you? That how many, that you'd be surprised by the number of them who would just say, well, you know what? <laughs> uh, it's amazing because here's the thing. is, is That's not even just a, a Christian question. It's the beginning of a spiritual conversation that you can take as a gospel conversation. Because you know what I've found is that uh, I've been able to pray with atheists. <laughs> There's no God but just in case. <laughs> Uh, Muslims, people who don't identify as believing the things that I would believe theologically. But you know what I'm going to pray for as I pray for them? I'm going to pray for them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and for opportunity to share it with them. I'm going to pray for them to come to know him. And so we find that one of the best ways is just asking questions. You know what else you can do? You can ask this question. You can go and you can say, hey, can I share with you what God is doing in my life? How many people are going to say no to that (laughs) how many people are going to say no 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 you know what i don't want to hear what god is doing in your life regardless of their religious beliefs and you know what you can do as you enter into that you can tell them what god is doing in your life a quick caveat um that means that we have to be aware of what god's doing in our life right Uh, we have to be in tune and in touch with the things that god is doing in and through us don't we if we only think about God on Sundays, then that question's probably going to be a difficult for you, one for you to launch into. But if God is transforming your life, if God is working in and through you, if he's doing a work in your family, if he's molding you into his image through the power of the word of God, the Bible, through the power of the Holy Spirit, if he's giving you new life and you fully understand the things that he's doing in and through you, that should be a topic that we should be able to talk about all day long. Because the gospel isn't just our ticket to heaven. Yes, yes, it's the way that we have entrance to God. It's the way that we can become his sons and daughters. But understand this, the gospel is not just our birth, but the gospel is also our life. It's not just an event that we look at one time as the way that we were saved, and then we turn away from it, and we just do our own thing to grow in our faith. No, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the thing that continues to grow us as well. You never, understand me, you never outgrow the gospel. You will never outgrow the gospel. And so here, what we find is that Philip comes up and he begins, he initiates this question. And he says, hey, um, do you understand what you read? And he says this, I love this, verse 31. How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep was led to a slaughter, like a lamb before his shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth and his humiliation. Justice was denied him who can describe this generation for his life is taken away from the earth. So this portion of scripture here today, we understand this portion of scripture comes from the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah in the old Testament. And as Isaiah, the prophet is writing, he's writing specifically of a man named Jesus. But this Ethiopian man, he doesn't understand all of these things. He's looking for an explanation. And and so what happens? He says to Philip, verse 34, the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this about himself or someone else? That is a great question, isn't it? If you're trying to share the gospel with someone and they ask that question, I mean, you're just like, you're just like salivating. All right. You're just like, yes, that is an excellent question. Let me tell you about it. And so what he does, watch this verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. But what happened? How how did he get there? Well, the Holy Spirit of God told Philip, go. So Philip goed, right? Philip went, he's there. And then the Holy Spirit of God says, hey, join yourself to this chariot. Hey, go, go along with these guys. And so he runs over, and then he hears a familiar passage. Isaiah 53, he says, oh, I, I know that. I know that passage. He hears it. And here's the thing. As he calls, as the Holy Spirit of God calls Philip to go down to the desert, does Philip know why God is calling him to go down to the desert? Is Philip like, you know what? I bet God has an individual for me right down there, and I bet I'm going to be able to uh, lead him to Jesus. Is that what he's thinking? We don't know. Does Philip need to know? Does Philip need to know? No. But you and I bless our hearts (laughs) we feel like we need to know don't we god you're calling me to this thing but what happens when god you know what but but what if but what if god we feel like oh god answer all my questions and then i will obey is that what happens in acts chapter number eight no philip god says hey philip i need you to go here okay he goes. Hey, Philip, uh, that chariot over there. You know what? He doesn't say, uh, because this is not probably, this is likely not a lone chariot. This is a very important man. This is probably some sort of a caravan that's going on. He doesn't look over there and say, well, that's kind of intimidating. Although I'm sure it was. (laughs) He doesn't say, well, they're, um, you know, I, I just, I don't know those guys. And what if they don't speak Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek? I mean, those are the only languages I know. He doesn't like, no. What does he do? He says, okay. He goes and joins himself to this chariot. Here's these uh, verses being read and says, hey, do you understand what you read? And then what happens? The Ethiopian, he invites him to go further. He says, no, how, how can I understand this? Unless someone tells me what it means. He's like, I feel like I'm missing something. And uh, he invites him to join and says, will you tell me about this? And Philip says, I would be glad to. And so he begins to teach him from the scriptures. He begins to learn of who Jesus of Nazareth was. Uh, He begins to hear about the work that he had done. And in fact, in this time that this is happening, um, this is not that long removed from when Jesus would have been crucified. And so this was an event that people heard about all over. Whisperings of this were all over uh, this region at the time. And so as he's telling me, you'd be like, yeah, you probably, you may have heard about this guy, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, the one who was crucified, um, but rose again and be like, you're kidding me. And so what does he do? He explains these things to him. Uh, But watch what happens next. Verse number uh, 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me from being baptized? And so he commands the chariot to stop. They both go down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And so what do we see next? Not only, not only is he saying, I believe in Jesus. It's a prerequisite. We you throughout all the scriptures for baptism. You find that in Acts chapter number two. You find that in Romans chapter number six. You find that all over the scriptures, that salvation is one thing, the placing of my faith in Jesus alone for my salvation. I want to go to heaven. I want to be with God. I want to be right with him. Jesus, Jesus, nothing else. But then we also see this act of obedience to what is taking place. And so here, Philip is able to have this conversation with this Ethiopian. Man, we don't know uh, where baptism came up. We don't know um, how Philip, if he began this conversation, and then he said, "You're not going to believe what happens. I was there, and the church just grew and multiplied, and thousands were baptized." What's baptism? Well, baptism is a public expression of this faith that we have on the inside. It's telling others that we're going to follow after Jesus and that we've changed our lives and given our lives to Him. I want to be baptized. There's water over there. What's going to keep me from getting baptized? Understand this. Understand this, and this is where we're going to kind of transition from uh, us corporately. How do we go and help others to the point of baptism? Versus, I need to be baptized. Watch this. Obedience multiplies obedience. I really believe this. Obedience multiplies obedience. Obedience what we see modeled throughout this chapter by Philip is nothing short of obedience. But as Philip obeys, God leads, God directs Philip where he would have Philip go. And every stop along Philip's way, the response to Philip's obedience to God is what? More obedience, not just by Philip, but by others. You see, did Philip lead this Ethiopian man to Christ because he was so convincing with his gospel presentation? He was so eloquent. We don't even know actually what he said after he initiated the conversation, do we? We don't. We, all we have is this is how he started the conversation. Then he explained. We don't know how long the conversation took. We don't know. We don't know any of these things. What we know is that Philip was obedient to the call of God on his life, and that obedience resulted in the obedience of this Ethiopian where does the fruit belong Is that Philip's fruit well how did Philip know the Ethiopian was going to be there he didn't how did Philip know to go talk to the Ethiopian he was told to he was just following directions how many of you can follow directions raise your hand if you can follow directions all right most of you good all right it's incredible right God does this work through Philip, but obedience multiplies obedience. So many of us, we wonder why, God, why am I not bearing fruits in my life? God, why is it that I don't have others that are following me as I'm obedience? That doesn't mean everyone's going to flock to be your disciples, but listen, that's the first step of discipleship, which brings us to baptism. You see, as we place our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, Throughout the scriptures, we see that baptism is a response to God following that salvation. We see that whereas one time we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, all of the wrongdoing that we had done made us enemies with God. But then through the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, we can have new life. We can be what we call saved. And then what's the response of that salvation? Baptism is simply this, the outward sign of the inward decision to follow Jesus. It's an outward sign of an inward decision to follow Jesus. So we're not baptized in order to save us. We're not baptized just to show that we want to be a good person or anything like that. But baptism demonstrates what that is to be brought from death into new life. And watch what happens here. Watch what happens here. He comes in and this man says, can I be baptized? Watch who he's baptized. Uh, this is what we would call a spontaneous baptism. It's immediate. He doesn't put it off and prolong this decision. And can I, can I tell you this, um, both in Philip and in this Ethiopian man, we see what wonderful models of obedience for us. Because when God says go, how ought we to respond? We should Go. Debate back and forth to God. Should I follow you? It's not what you see in the scriptures, but we see that we see that we ought to obey just every impulse, every movement of the Holy spirit, because he does tell us that he's not always going to strive with. He's not always going to wrestle with us. And when that time comes that we have just quenched the Holy spirit of God and said, no, God, no, God, no, God. Eventually God says, you know what? Okay. That's, that's how you want it done. That's a dangerous place to be as a follower of God, as a son or a daughter of God, wrestling with him and pushing back against him. You see, and watch this. There's no, there is no substitute for our obedience to God. There's no substitute for sharing the gospel of Jesus. There's no substitute for doing what, what he has called us to do. See, sometimes, uh, if you're like me, or I see this in my kids too, my kids like to bargain right? And they like to say, dad, you know, I know, I know the rule is that we can't play video games until the playroom is clean or whatever. But what if, what if we don't clean the closet? (laughs) They try to bargain with, they try to say, oh, but what if, but so many times, so many times, if you're like me, you try to do that with God. We say, God, listen, I go to church. I, I serve in the church maybe. I even give to the church. I even tithe. Ten percent of what I have goes to your work. Wow, look at me, God! But understand this: if God has called me to obey in another area, and I'm saying, "God, you know what? I'll just give more so I don't have to do that." Hello, not obedience. Not obedience. Because can I tell you this? God doesn't want uh, God doesn't want your your checkbook. God doesn't want your planner. God doesn't want your, you name it. God wants your heart. He wants your heart. And here's the thing is he can get your checkbook without getting your heart. He can get your calendar without getting your heart. He can get your home. He can get your reason. He can get so many of these things without getting your heart. But if he gets your heart, all the rest is going to come with it. Right? We know how that works. He doesn't want just those things to do. He says, I want your heart. And as we are going into, as we step into baptism, here's what this is. It is just a posture. It is a symbol. It is following an obedience saying, God, you know what? You have impressed on me that I need to come and be obedient to you. You have saved me. You have given me new life through your son, Jesus. And I want to respond with yes, God. Yes to what? Whatever he asks. Whatever he asks. God, I want you to move, and I want you to do the work. Okay. That first step of obedience, you know what it is? It's baptism. It's baptism. I've been so blessed over the last few months to baptize uh, a number of people that I care deeply about. I see some sitting in this room today. That over the last few months, you've taken that beautiful step of baptism. I had the privilege just a couple months ago of baptizing my own daughter who placed her faith in Jesus. What a wonderful time that was. Next week, we have three individuals who want to follow the Lord in baptism. And we celebrate that. We celebrate that. But let me tell you this. If you're sitting in this room today and you say a couple different things, you say, Nate, you know what? I don't even know that I'm saved. I I don't know that if I were to die today, I don't know that I would even go to heaven. I don't know that my sins are forgiven. I don't know that I'm a child of God. Can I tell you today? I'd love to help you get that taken care of, get that figured out. Because that's an important decision. Don't, don't put that off. Maybe you're in here today and you say, Nate, you know what? I've never been baptized. Or as we talk today, you say, Nate, you know, maybe I was, I was baptized when I was really, really young. I was baptized as an infant. And then later I made a decision to follow Jesus. Well, hey, listen, I'm so glad that your parents loved you enough to connect you with a church and try to raise you in a godly way. As we look through baptism in the New Testament, it's an individual decision that we make to symbolize our following of Jesus. And so we see that over and over and over again, as we follow after Jesus, we are saved and then we are baptized. I'd love to have that conversation with you, to talk more with you about that. And even next week as we baptize, there may be someone here and you say, Hey, you know what? That's the next step I need to take. And I tell you, it's not too late. It's not too late. And as we look at this Ethiopian man, he goes down into the water with Philip. And really, um, the word for this, if my understanding of the Greek is correct, um, it kind of means a mud puddle. <laughs> it's not the most like elegant, extravagant thing. It's just a little bit of water, enough to go down into, submerge in, and come right back up, and that's it. A picture of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. He probably had to go clean up after he was baptized. He'd go take a shower after being baptized. Our baptistry has a heater. Hey, All right, listen, if they can obey, if the Ethiopian unit get this man who was responsible for the finances of a nation can climb into a mud puddle, (laughs) you and I can climb into a heated tub of water, right? And here's what it is. It's the first step in becoming a Philip, the evangelist. Because we see baptism is a beautiful symbol of the work that God's already done in our hearts and that he's continuing to do. And so we can show our friends, we can show our family members, we can show those that we care about as we invite them to come and participate in this. We can say, hey, I'm walking through this action that says I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for me and that he rose again, and I can have new and eternal life in him. And so today, as we talk about next steps, what's yours? Maybe you're in this room. I know many in this room. I mean, a number of you have baptized myself. I know you've been baptized. Uh, but hey who are we going after how are we responding to God can I tell you this the church is the only organization that I know of that exists for the people who aren't even in here Did you catch that who do we exist for just for us we exist for those because Jesus told us in Matthew chapter number 28 go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature So we don't just exist for the people in here. We exist for those around us. And so what are we doing with that? Church, disciples make disciples. Obedience breeds obedience. And so we have to take a close look at ourselves and say, hey, where am I at in the middle of this? Am I seeing the fruit that God is desiring for me to see?